I'd like to welcome our listeners and guests to the July edition of Information News Crossroads podcast. Today, I'm your host, Matt O'Brien, news editor for our North America coverage. Today, I, I thought it'd be uh, it'd be interesting to talk about uh, broadband infrastructure, which you know we've all heard during the um, COVID pandemic. We've heard from public officials talk about bringing certain projects online to widen access to distance learning, telemedicine, other applications, similar applications, and generally improving people's access to, to broadband as they, uh, as they work from home during the pandemic. Um, we've also heard from investors and operators about you know, their bullish case for the hardware that underpins broadband services, you know, fiber and wireless networks. So today, to help me explore those issues in, in greater detail, we've asked uh, Sebastian Caputo of John Lang and Sue Lee of EY to be guests on today's podcast. Um, Sebastian is, is an investment director with John Lang Infrastructure Investors. He leads the digital infrastructure investment platform in North America. Uh, prior to that, he was part of the Global Communications Infra Infrastructure Investment Banking Team at RBC, uh, covering each of the various sectors, including fiber, data infrastructure, and mobile wireless. Sue is a managing director with Ernst Young Infrastructure Advisors, where she provides strategic and financial advice to public agencies on P3s and other alternative delivery method, uh, methods. She advised, in fact, she advised the Georgia DOT on its broadband project. Um, with that, I would like to get into uh, some questions I have for you guys. And Sebastian, I wanted to start with you. I wanted you to discuss the different types of broadband platforms and how they fit within the digital infrastructure landscape. Great. Well, Matt, thank you so much for having me. And Sue, great to be on this podcast panel with you. So you know, with that question, I think it's best to help first understand the broader digital infrastructure industry landscape which includes bandwidth infrastructure, which effectively is fiber, uh, data infrastructure, and mobile wireless infrastructure. Each one of those sectors has subsectors with their own investment characteristics in them. And, and taking those in reverse order, the mobile wireless infrastructure sector includes macro towers, outdoor small cells, and or wireless networks, and the latter being something that we're starting to see a lot more attention to as densification and spectrum requirements uh, you know, put a lot more attention on them. And then data infrastructure includes hyperscale wholesale data centers, retail co-location and hybrid co-location and managed services, as well as pure cloud. And then bandwidth infrastructure includes long haul, fiber, middle mile networks. Um, a lot of those are oftentimes uh, uh, embedded with uh, dark fiber type contracts. You also have regional network operators, predominantly focused on enterprise connectivity, but we're starting to see them address a lot more of the wireless carrier, wholesale carrier needs. And then we're also starting to see fiber to the premise, uh, fiber to the home, as some other folks call it. Uh, NAS focus more on discrete markets and municipalities with a large component focus on residential customers and small to medium-sized businesses. And um, on that last one, we're starting to see that come into the U.S. Uh, more in focus. And you would say that Europe probably has a lot more uh, of a, a history over the past few years of fiber to the home, fiber to the premise type investment platforms. And in taking the high-level approach, looking at those subsectors, a decade ago, these digital infrastructure sectors were part of the same industry universe, but were large degree separate industries with distinct underlying operational and investment characteristics. But over time, 
these sectors have become more intertwined, both operationally and from a customer provisioning perspective. And focusing on specifically on bandwidth infrastructure, which again is primarily fiber at this moment, is the key asset that clues each of the digital infrastructure sectors is by far the best medium for transport of data packets versus, you know, what we're seeing, albeit more economically, like fixed wireless, satellite, or perhaps cable HFC plants. And of course, you know, much better than, than traditional legacy copper DSL type provisionings. Fiber connects enterprises, data centers, towers, small cells, indoor facilities, which could be anything from commercial buildings to multi-dwelling units, convention centers, arenas, and more recently in the U.S., starting to connect residences. And if we look at how fiber interplays with the other subsectors, we look at data centers. Data centers, for example, they're not going to be very useful um, unless they have you know, multiple high-quality, dense fiber network connectivity with diverse entry, uh, egress, ingress points. Um, and we're seeing a lot of demand from hyperscalers for fiber assets looking to connect their data center footprints, which they typically do via dark fiber IRUs. And then on the macro tower side, the mobile wireless infrastructure side, we're seeing wireless carriers continue to move away from wireless backhaul to fiber to the tower deployments. Uh, and mostly on a dark fiber basis, albeit we do see carriers uh, you know, contract with uh, third-party fiber operators on a lib basis. And we're starting to see, um, as network topologies advance, we're starting to see a lot more front hull connectivity for CRAN architecture. And small cells are part of the network densification build-out, which itself is mostly fiber. And the same thing with indoor network solutions. And that addresses public safety networks, Wi-Fi solutions, as well as uh, just broader carrier uh, distributed antenna systems. And uh, now we're starting to see private networks, the CBRS. All of these digital infrastructure verticals require fiber in order to operate at its basic operational level. And so, you know, as investors look at the entire sector, they, there certainly has been evolution as they've gone from each of the different subsectors. Um, and now, you know, more recently, fiber has been a core focus of theirs, given the underpinnings of how it's intertwined with all the other different subsectors. So that's kind of a high-level viewpoint industry landscape, and, and hopefully that conveys uh, the importance of we think the the ultimate importance and in intertwining of, of fiber across each of those elements. Yeah, no, that that's great. That's uh, helpful and a good way to, to start the discussion. Uh, Sue, I, I want to turn to you, and you know, given your role at EY and, and working with public agencies, what what role do public agencies play in in delivering digital projects, and what are what are their goals? Um, and as a follow-up to that, is there any opportunity for P3 delivery of these projects? Sure. So uh, thanks for having me. I mean, I think that the roles that public agency play are probably incredibly broad and nuanced, but there are three key roles that I think are of interest to this audience and that I see really emerging, especially in the current context. You know, so first is permitting authority, you know, for laying large corridors or fiber or even short ones, depending on who the landowners are. I think public agencies are critical as uh, the grant tours of permits, licenses, easements to private parties so that they can actually get onto land to install the fiber or wireless equipment. And, you know, the goals here are really to enable broadband expansion and coverage in their jurisdictions, to enable private business, and to support the, the community of constituents that needs that asset. Second, the key role is just as consumers and end users of this digital infrastructure. 
as you can imagine, public agencies have a lot of data needs themselves that they are using to run their departments to transfer information. And they also need to provide reliable service to their users. So, you know, I was happy to see that Amtrak is really um, allowing me to have wireless coverage in their tunnels now. <laughs> and that kind of service on major transit corridors really enables better productivity for their users. But as we start to see, you know, changes in technology of our infrastructure that's not directly on the highways or transit networks, but are really about like connected and automated vehicles, these agencies are going to need to actually use and uh, enable much more data on, on their corridors. So, they are buyers of the infrastructure as well, and they're going to have to keep pace with this moving technology. But a third really important role and goal is to really carry out bigger picture policy initiatives. So as we're seeing in the, the COVID world, the, the fiber and wireless technology is not just a nice to have, but an absolute must have for business, for social connectivity, for education. And so I think at the executive levels of state and local governments, there is a mandate to more of their departments to figure out ways to bridge that digital divide between, you know, access at income levels and between the rural and the urban. And, you know, is there an opportunity for P3? I think yes, there definitely is. Uh, how, how can that be accessed is going to really depend on the ways in which public agencies are structuring their projects. You know, I'm sure that folks might be thinking about some of the recent projects such as Pennsylvania Turnpike, Kentucky Wired, the Georgia Broadband Project, which is, you know, on pause, but I think hopefully we're going to resume that soon. You know, and I think that they're asking, like, is this the right model? Will it work? And I think that there are ways in which it can work, but it really depends on how much flexibility public agencies can use in their procurement strategies and how they can actually engage with a market that does contracting and delivery in a very different way than some of the DOTs or transit agencies might typically do it. And so, you know, I've had a few observations that might be a, a good launching point for a discussion with Sebastian on this, which is that you know, broadband sector is doing fine without the public agencies stepping in through P3s. It's not like a toll road. You know, these are assets that the public sector has been delivering on their own, and the way that they do business is very different. I'm not sure that they see a huge incentive to change so far. You know, the key market players might not want to engage in the public procurement process. And also, the idea of there being like a fixed scope that enables low-cost bidding evaluation might be challenging when you've got so many different business models that the operators are using. For some operators, fiber is their focus. Others, wireless, some both. And so, you know, how do you develop a project that enables clear, fair, transparent procurement, but also get to a very unique structure? You know, and that's kind of the nut that we as an industry need to work together to crack in order for deals to flourish. Great. Uh, Sebastian, did you want to add yeah. to that? or? Yeah, I think uh, obviously Sue made some, some awesome points there, all very relevant. I pretty much agree with everything she covered there. Um, you know, the vast majority of opportunities in the space are within the private sector. 
And as we mentioned, PPP programs are more difficult in the broadband space, in part because commercialization opportunities in the market are, are very market-specific. In terms of advancing the goal of minimizing the digital divide, there has been success in incentivizing network build-outs in rural areas via direct federal and state subsidy programs. This, those programs effectively defray uh, the private operators' build-out costs and makes the investment economically viable where it otherwise wouldn't be. Um, you know, the idea that the private operator will evaluate all potential lease-up opportunities off the network is better set in, in that direct subsidy program um, and they can then plug in the hole with government subsidies to make it economically viable. You know, that solution has worked in, in many cases. Uh, understanding that each of the states have a whole bunch of different assets they feel like they can leverage and perhaps, you know, enjoy some of the uplift of commercialization opportunities where a private operator jumps onto their physical assets, it becomes pretty difficult um, because you're trying to kind of shoehorn, um, you know, a, a network topography when it might not really marry with you know, the commercialization opportunities a private operator uh, would be able to pursue. Uh, but if you're able to give them direct subsidies, then they are able to leverage state assets um, where they can, um, and then also pursue you know, the, the private uh, right-of-way route, permit route, and, and figure out their own kind of network topology uh, on their own. But there, there could be some, uh, some PPP programs that could work, um, but it's just not going to be, in my view, uh, you know, the, the main down the fairway uh, means of, of getting the rural uh, areas connected, um, if that's the goal. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so that's, I don't want to be too harsh on PPPs with regards to broadband. Uh, there could be some successful uh, opportunities there, but uh, otherwise I think direct federal and state subsidies might be uh, the, the better course of action. Understood. Gotcha. Uh, Sebastian, I, I want to um, stick with you here for, for a second. Um, how, how digital infrastructure investors view broadband investment opportunities? As opposed to you know, public involvement, looking more at digital infrastructure investors um, and, and, and their involvement with uh, you know, building out these, these different network programs. You know, over the past decade, the investment community began to view these tower data centers and fiber assets through the infrastructure lens. The investor base has shifted from traditional private equity to infrastructure funds and now includes direct investments by infrastructure fund LPs. These are the pension funds, insurance funds, sovereign wealth funds. And part of this investor shift is a result of the core plus infrastructure investment profile of taking on more risk for greater return. But part of this is acceptance of digital infrastructure as a more stable and steady industry that is more mission critical to our daily lives and becoming less and less discretionary. The world's recent COVID experience has only accelerated these elements as our reliance on digital infrastructure has deemed it to be an essential service and almost a quasi-utility alongside water, electricity, gas. You know, and it first started with macro towers in terms of private investors coming in um, and shifting from traditional private equity to infrastructure investors. Um, and that, coincidentally, Macro Towers was the first subsector to secure REIT status as well, kind of another element highlighting, you know, it's more real estate, more asset, more infrastructure-like characteristics. And then within Macro Towers specifically, these vertical steel assets attached to the ground with operators securing long-term contracts with high-credit quality wireless customers um, was going to be you know, the first shoot a drop in terms of long-term infrastructure investors and then institutional investors coming in. Next was the wholesale data centers, then hyperscale customers 
with the same type of customer customer contract characteristics, right? You would have long-term contracts with strong credit qualities, you know, as opposed to a Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile, you know, these hyperscalers are Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, where you can kind of pierce through the contract veil and underwrite the underlying credit quality of those customers. And and now as the infrastructure investors, you know, have continued to go, on, go down the different subsectors of digital infrastructure, they're now a few years into um, evaluating fiber platforms, uh, especially those fiber platforms supporting large enterprise connectivity, data center connectivity, fiber to the tower, government E-rate. Uh, investors are essentially looking for the same or similar char- characteristics on the investment side that attracted them first to towers and then to data centers. I mean, just to highlight a few of, of you know, the investment characteristics that infrastructure funds and other long-term institutional investors are looking for is essentially revenue visibility, strong market demand, support bookings and top-line growth, sticky customer base, low churn, strong counterparty uh, credit quality, perhaps diversification across customer verticals and service offerings, high stabilized margins and high operating leverage with high incremental flow-through margin percentages, uh, a high level of long-lived asset ownership, uh, and perhaps an opportunity for expansion capbacks and success-based capbacks with short payback periods and high ROICs, and then just generally favorable competitive dynamics. Um, and so that's kind of like the holy grail, the holy bible of, of the different facets of what investors are, are looking for. And we're starting to see each of these subsectors starting to you know, exhibit a lot of these characteristics. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, I would say that as the investor community starts to get pretty saturated, you know, it started with towers and then hyperscale customers, they continue to go down. The, the list um, in, in finding more infrastructure characteristics in each of the different subsectors, or at least are willing to take on some of those subsectors that don't have the highest level of each one of those investment characteristics I mentioned. Um, but that's kind of the evolution of where we are today. Uh, and, and now I think it'd be very difficult for any infrastructure investor to claim that digital infrastructure isn't you know, part of, uh, of a core focus or something they're looking to evaluate getting into. All right, great. Um, Sue, I want to turn to you. How can, getting back to the public sector, how can governments better structure P3 programs or other non-P3 structures to incentivize investments uh, across across the states? I think that, you know, going back to Sebastian's earlier point on rural broadband, you know, there's probably a couple ways to think about where the digital infrastructure kind of assets lie. I mean, there are some that are going to be commercially attractive and, you know, generate a lot of potential revenue for the private sector. So, you know, there's probably less work that governments need to do to intervene there and incentivize uh, investment. And then for the less commercially attractive areas, which are, you know, primarily the broad, the rural areas, I mean, let's face it, there's a reason why the rural areas are not covered right now sufficiently, and it's just because the private market does not think that they can make, you know, sufficient revenue off of that. And so if we consider broadband, fiber, wireless to be an essential asset, as essential as power or water or postal service, the government's going to need to help create that market through subsidized programs where, you know, they're really taking on that revenue risk through some kind of guarantee or, you know, 
being an anchor tenant and creating that market so that the private investment will flow. And eventually, you know, as those areas become more commercially viable, I think that the public subsidies can get weaned off. But I think that's the initial step, you know, for the more commercially attractive areas. I think it's really possible for public agencies to think hard about the the deal structuring. I mean, when you think about the classic, you know, fiber type of deal, what people are going to operators asking for is, you know, you design the network, you build it for me, you bring in your own capital, we'll put we'll put in some capital ourselves too, and then you operate it and maintain it at a certain level of service. So design, build, finance, operate, maintain are embedded into that structure. And I think that, you know, I keep kind of brainstorming on this, but if the public agencies approached it more like a standard IRU contract and went to the providers to really think about how they structure those elements into something that's uh, both compliant with procurement policies, meets public, you know, infrastructure goals, and actually enables and incentivizes, you know, the commercialization, I think that there's a solution there. And I'm optimistic because, you know, when you think about the early P3s of our more traditional civil infrastructure sector and that early phase, there were hiccups there. Not every project was a success. There have been bankruptcies. And so I think when we look at this sector, it may not be perfect in terms of its implementation, but eventually we'll be able to work together, you know, as public agencies with private sector par- partners to get it right and to get to a deal structure that, that works. Okay, thank, thank you for that. Um, Sebastian, I'm not sure if you want to contribute to that or if you guys, you know, we're going to start to wind it down here. If you guys have any last thoughts before we, uh, before we sign off. No, I think I would just say that, you know, I totally agree with, with Sue. The global recognition of the importance of digital infrastructure is is now, without a doubt, you know, widely accepted, right? So everybody understands um, it's been accelerated by the COVID experience, how important connectivity is across the board. And, you know, connectivity and, and performance of experience um, has commercialization impact, has, has also educational impact nowadays. Um, as mentioning, so Amazon or anybody else can tell you in terms of overall latency experience by an end user has a direct impact on you know, their sales, for example. And so uh, and with regards to children and their education, Zoom, uh, learning from home, for example, any type of asymmetric you know, um, issues compromise the quality of their educational experience. And, you know, that happens professionally as well, uh, but certainly with children can be more distracted if they don't have the ability to continuously receive, you know, the teacher's feedback, guidance, whatever it might be, or their ability to kind of upload their own uh, image and, and discussion points. It's, it's not going to be a great experience all the way around. So the need for top quality connectivity on a, on a symmetric basis is important. And that's not just fiber, but it also requires greater, greater you know, data infrastructure storage capacity, uh, you know, compute capacity, bringing it closer to the end customers, perhaps people calling it edge computing, for example. Um, and then in addition to that, having that experience you're getting from your home, your desk, perhaps even your office on a kind of mobile basis, right? Being able to take a call outside, enter a building, perhaps even go through your elevator into your office 
uh, it makes a big deal. And right now we're not even close to that, right? And uh, But we're going to get there. And it's going to take investment. It's going to take investment in physical fiber assets, investment in in the basic servers that fill up data centers. is going to take you know, investment within Spectrum uh, with regards to you know wireless connectivity, uh, both outside and indoor, uh, within indoor facilities. Um, so any investor um, in the space is certainly kind of looking at their saying how can be part of this overall expansion for what is starting to become more mission critical, more essential uh, infrastructure need. So uh, I'll just leave it, leave it at that. And I can't cannot fault any of the states for wanting to you know, incentivize and facilitate creative build-outs for their own constituents. It's just a better lifestyle um, and, and it helps you know, foment more economic activity. One thing I want to say is I think that the public sector would welcome partnership with the private sector on on this question of what can we do to incentivize you to make this an easier process for growth of these assets because my clients are very focused on future planning, right? It takes a long time for public sector to build assets out, you know, at a big scale, which is what a lot of these departments are charged to do. And so they're not only thinking about all those really like critical day-to-day functions that Sebastian mentioned that we are, you know, living right now, but they're really thinking about what's going to happen 10 years from now or 20 years from now. The DOTs are definitely thinking, obviously, about, you know, the highways and CAVs, but municipalities are thinking about how are people going to be living in another 10, 15 to 20 years. Their planning cycles are that far out, so they do understand the criticality of uh, expansion of fiber and broadband, and they're going to be really very motivated to use their political investment in growing this field. And and I think that that's really my kind of optimistic spin on it. I appreciate that. Uh, I want to thank our guests, Sebastian and Sue, for taking time to join us today and going into finer details about broadband investments. Um, And I'd like to thank our audience for listening in. Uh, That wraps up this uh, month's edition of Crossroads Podcast.